0: is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Welcome to Doing Translational Research, a podcast of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. Uh, my name's Chris Wildeman, the director of the center and the usual host for this, not always, I think. Um, and I'm here today with um, my friend and sometimes collaborator, we've written together three or four times, right? Um, Emily Wang. Um, I have Emily's long bio in front of me, but I'm just gonna talk about the things that I wanna talk about instead. So um, Emily's an associate professor of medicine at Yale. Um, And her work is mostly on sort of folks who are either currently incarcerated or transitioning out of the criminal justice system. And so, so welcome. Thanks Thank for you. Um, joining me on my couch that you said is too large and uncomfortable. It, um, is. it is. Um So that will now be documented.
1: Great. <laughs> That's have have a preference for uh, seating that would accommodate people that are a little shorter in stature.
0: Yep. Even though you're 5'5". Five five, I, so I am. Anyway, the couch is not comfortable, apparently. Uh, so the uh, this is the first time we've had somebody on who is an MD. Um, and also does research. So I, I wonder if maybe you could talk about sort of the medical practice component of what you do first and um, if you could talk maybe along the way about how you kind of expand it out from um, physician to also, you know, really top-notch researcher in this field that would be
1: great. Sure. I am very excited to be the first MD on this podcast. So you know, um, as you know, I'm a practicing uh, primary care physician trained in internal medicine, um, and came to this work in kind of in uh, uh, it was a fluke. I, I wouldn't say that it was like my aspiration all my life uh, to really have a career focused on. Uh, the health of people that have returned home from jails and prisons but have come to it and uh, find it quite rewarding and so uh, my daily practice is one where I see patients uh, that have come home from prisons and jails. I currently practice in uh, New Haven um, and we have a targeted program embedded within a community health center really focused on the health needs of individuals that are coming back from uh, the correctional system and, um, and in particular uh, practice uh, in a program uh, that I co-founded and then is part of a larger network of primary care practices across the country that are really focused on caring for people that have come home from correctional facilities and we do so in partnership, at, you know, almost at the lead of a community health worker that has a history of incarceration and so um, it's probably best part of my week, uh, really focused in on thinking about how team-based care looks, Um, What it is that we can do for patients as soon as they come home, and then um, over their transition home, how it is that we as physicians can really uh, think about patients, think about their whole health needs, uh, and attend to them. And so, over time, uh, you know, uh, when you've been practicing as long as I have, inevitably, um, while there's profound power to taking care of an individual in front of you. you know, increasingly you start seeing patterns, you Mm -hmm. start becoming increasingly more frustrated with certain patterns and want to kind of dig in. And so um, earlier in my career, I realized that there hadn't been uh, uh, much focus on uh, the individual health needs of people, especially in the transition home, and uh, started building upon um, the work that I was seeing clinically uh, and starting to answer research questions. And um, in doing so, uh, it's been a really rewarding kind of balance where you're able to kind of see something in clinic, think about a research question that sometimes emerges from the patient, and then uh, design, or, uh, design the best possible study given the data that we have or given kind of the tools and methods we have to really answer questions. And so um, some of the work we've done are, you know, real concrete practical questions of you know, uh, does incarceration impact you know uh, cardiovascular disease outcomes? And then others are really focused on thinking about interventions, either studying transitions clinic program largely, or uh, yeah, trying to think about the assets that exist in communities uh, that are impacted by mass incarceration and designing and studying the efficacies of those interventions.
0: Cool. Um, so you you alluded earlier to the. Transitions Clinic which you founded although you didn't or co-founded although you didn't name it. Can you can you maybe talk a little bit about sort of what you think of as being sort of the primary principles behind it or what kind of gap you feel like it fills in terms of um, healthcare?
1: Yeah, um, you know, oftentimes interventions pop up in healthcare, and uh, especially kind of physicians or healthcare providers, we think like we know exactly what the problem is, right? And so there's, a, and then we know how to solve it. And so there's an obvious problem, which is that there's a healthcare system behind bars and a healthcare system in the community, and the transition is poor. And that's been borne out um, in good studies showing that of the risk of death, the risk of hospitalization is quite high in that critical transition period and people define that, you know, it can be days, weeks, months, even a year out, but that transition is um, health-harming and often leads to death. Um, And then the question is how do you you intervene on that high-risk time period? And so, um, you know, if there's one thing that you see kind of clearly over and over, are that interventions often don't work if there isn't real investment of the patients, the communities that are most impacted. And so I had the good fortune of of kind of being obsessed with this problem earlier on in my career in San Francisco where there is a robust, long-standing community of uh, civil rights activists, uh, all of whom have been incarcerated and all of whom are fighting uh, for the resumption of civil rights of people uh, who have uh, criminal records and so it was in partnership with them uh, that we put forward a model that really tries to put patients' preferences, their values and their needs first and I'd say that that's core among the key principles of our transitions clinic program is saying that patients um, who often are mistrustful of the health system have been stigmatized for their criminal record and for their otherness, their blackness, their poverty, etc. Um, that they should be first and, and really kind of be partners in thinking about how primary care ought to feel and look
0: uh, for them. Great. Yeah. So that I, <clears throat> Yeah, the, the context especially around San Francisco is helpful. I, I guess that I mean I do want to get to research at some point but I had another question first. Sure. So one thing that um, one thing that has struck me as really interesting and it came up in the talk a little bit yesterday Um, is so you know you founded the transitions clinic you've put a tremendous amount of time and energy into it and you're simultaneously trying to do these really rigorous evaluations of that program and I guess it, it would just be interesting to hear you talk through sort of the tensions or how you feel about like you're basically like evaluating like how your baby's doing in some ways and and so it just, it would be interesting to hear you talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, you know, I think I am, yeah, certainly I want to, you know, be honest with myself is that um, this program does uh, in the network of people uh, that are in our network um, provide me deep joy, I believe in kind of, uh, you know, this real assets based outlook. Uh, within our network that people that have been incarcerated can contribute to transformations of the, of the primary care system But I think it would be foolish also to say that we've got this like we know exactly what we're doing We don't make mistakes um, And so I think that that is this tension is that we know that there are significant risks uh, that happen in the weeks months, you know in years following release um, we think that um, Transitions Clinic Program. We've tested, it, as you alluded to, in randomized control trials using robust, I'd say, you know, quasi-experimental studies where we have linked uh, multiple state-level administrative um, claims data to study kind of its impact on healthcare utilization as well as uh, recidivism. But the story isn't done. And so to me, I mean, I think that that's the real combination of that art and science, which is you have to leverage the best possible science, you know, randomization when possible, um, especially when putting forward programs that are um, really do have an impact on patient lives. And so um, I do think that that's a tension. I also will acknowledge this, that oftentimes you're like, you're evaluating your own program, um, what's clear to me is, you know, I, I uh, the studies that we do, um, the analyses are done either outside, mm-hmm. so, you know, I don't have access to the data where you can kind of game the system. We, right now, are about to start a randomized control trial of six transitions clinic network sites and studying kind of its impact on opioid use disorder. And, again, these are six sites that all fall outside of New Haven. And so mm-hmm. I'm cognizant of that tension also between researcher as well as practitioner and kind of Um, where there might be ethical concerns or uh, worries about uh, how the research is being implemented.
0: Yeah, no, that makes, that totally makes sense. So, okay, to to switch exclusively to research, so what would you, what would you say are sort of the two or three kind of big questions that you try to answer in your, in your research?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So I would say that there are some kind of pragmatic, solid questions uh, that need to be answered. They're not necessarily always the things that fire me up the most, um, but they're questions that I think are important and critical to the field. So currently, uh, you know, we know that people have high risk of dying from heart disease and kind of disproportionately higher risk of dying from heart disease post-release, the same with cancer, the same with opioid use disorder, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't really know uh, what are the mediators, like where are the intervention points. And Mm -hmm. so currently we have um, some studies focused on the epidemiology of uh, why incarceration might put people at increased risk for poor cardiovascular risk factor management disease. Similarly, we're looking at uh, studies mostly epi-focused, a mixed-method study where we're linking the Cancer Tumor Registry of Connecticut To uh, the Department of Corrections data and looking again, um, where are, why are people within Connecticut that have cancer, what's putting them at greater risk? Are there certain cancers, uh, et cetera, that are? Um, either disproportionately higher among those that are incarcerated, and then is it delays in care? Um, Where are the delays in care happening? Why are the delays in care happening? And then able to focus interventions. And so I'd say that's one group of questions that I think are important. Um, They're not particularly sexy, but they're important to answer so that we can then get to interventions. Um, the other part that I think is really critical, uh, and and these are really focused at the individual level, and you yeah. and I have had conversations yeah. before, we've talked where, you know, uh, really in a lot of different ways, the individual level impacts of incarceration on health have been pretty well documented, um, and, you know, the next step, and I think that this is the part of me that is the doctor, is thinking about, well, how best do you intervene? Like, You know, when should chemotherapy be delivered? How does it look like? What sorts of interventions need to be happening inside to help patients better manage their heart disease? That's one. The second, I think, um, that I'm really excited about is thinking about the kind of uh, larger impacts of incarceration um, on families and then, in particular, communities. And um, where I think that there are holes um, that our team is starting to look into is, Uh, what's happening in rural communities in particular, uh, where we see higher rates of uh, imprisonment in jails, um, and also kind of the overall impacts of having a a jail or prison, but in particular jail, open or closed in communities and also looking um, by uh, urban and rural uh, status. I think that these are... um, yeah, questions that we're pursuing, um, partially because I think they're exciting, they haven't been looked at uh, in depth uh, in uh, in terms of their health impacts, um, but also because I think that our, the larger national conversation around mass incarceration and especially around decarceration warrants a real look in communities which are differentially impacted and kind of have other issues of, of concern of thinking about access to health care, economic, and community development that are that are interesting, so. Cool. And
0: what, I guess, um, what would you say is the most surprising thing that you found in your research?
1: You know what I think is surprising? That there's, uh, um, I guess it's not surprising, but it's, it still does surprise me, is that um you know, when I talk about our work, and, you know, our, our team is big, and so it's not my work but ours, uh, but when I, when I do talk about the work that we're doing, our team is really very focused on assets, really thinking about kind of a positive deviance model and, like, what sort of interventions ought to be leveraged that utilize the assets that exist uh, among people with histories of incarceration in our communities. And there just hasn't been as much work really focusing on what works within communities Mm -hmm. in spite of real structural uh, and historical disadvantage. And so that's the part that I think we're most excited about.
0: That's great. I mean, you see, I mean, you definitely see parallels in the research on parental incarceration where there's been very little focus on sort of what are the things that lead to High achievement or yeah. really good outcomes, instead of yeah, no. Yeah. Um,
1: and if you think about kind of like getting to complex solutions, right? I mean, these are these are problems that are difficult, they're complicated, et cetera. That we need uh, solutions that come from all ends, right? That you have to think about kind of. Um, that, uh, you know, mitigation of risk, sure, but also what is working, how does it work, why Why do things that in spite of kind of um, conditions where you think, yeah, it shouldn't be working, it is, you know.
0: Yeah. Do you, um, I mean, this is like going way back to the evaluations, but um, what, one thing I've always wondered about, and I think with, you know, the program you designed, I would especially wonder if this is the case is um, I mean, the statistical term for it would be contamination. But whether, you know, um, whether basically other systems are seeing what you're doing and then adjusting accordingly in ways that actually make it hard hmm. to sort of have a true treatment and control group because the control group is essentially benefiting from improved healthcare care as sort of a response to what you're doing. I mean, do you think you see any of that or are the systems I don't understand anything about the medical system so like you know or or what the DOC would know about the various programs but do you have a like do you have any sense of whether you're seeing folks who aren't involved with your program responding in any way to the to the presence of it or do you think it's you know, you're kind of doing your thing, and everybody else is just continuing to do things the same way.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily attribute it to kind of transitions clinic network, but I will say that nationally, there is increasingly over the past you know decade or so that I've been doing this work, much more attention mm-hmm. towards transitions, and I think we're part of that conversation certainly. Um, I'll take it any day. You know, like if there's contamination going on, that's the part I was like, I'll do it. Uh, um, and i think it's a good thing and and i think from the research standpoint i mean what we're cautious to say is and cautious to do is that we almost never you know in designing a randomized control trial we'll, our comparison group almost never is standard of care because standard mm-hmm. of care is not uh is not ethical right now as it stands and right. so um, you know, we, I alluded to this eight-person uh, randomized controlled trial. The comparative group will still get primary care, right. and that's an improvement. They are going to get a primary care appointment within four uh, weeks of their release from uh, jail, and so we're clear to compare to what we think would be a reasonable standard of care, which is a referral to a primary care clinic and then uh, looking at how transitions uh, might impact.
0: That's great. Yeah. Okay. So two kind of closing questions, which are totally unrelated. Okay. But you can answer them in whatever sequence you want. So the first is, um, and you talked about this a bunch yesterday, but m- most or almost all of your all your work that involves primary data collection is community-based participatory research, which um, is a is sort of a specific kind of translational research. But it would be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about. Um, what you'd most want researchers who haven't used those methods to know about them. Um, and then also, you know, maybe what based on your research experience more broadly you would most kind of want folks to know either about formerly incarcerated folks or communities they live in or the healthcare system or any of those things Two very different questions.
1: All right, well, I'll tackle (laughs) the first, and I might need a reminder about the second.
0: I might too. (laughs) Carrie's here, (laughs) so we're good. uh, Perfect,
1: (laughs) perfect. So, you know, for the first, uh, much of the work when we're doing primary data collection does involve a community based participatory research approach, and um, so, uh, but not all of it, you know, like for this large EPI study we're doing where we're following 500 people. Uh, released from uh, the Connecticut Tomorrow Corrections, it it doesn't have a a deep participatory component. But much of the work, and especially the work that is focused on interventions or something, studying a policy, we have used that approach. And so, um, uh, just as a reminder for listeners, you know, a community-based participatory research approach is one that really includes those most impacted. In our case, it's typically people that have been incarcerated, but oftentimes also um, correctional policymakers, healthcare system actors, any individual that's important to kind of really uh, studying uh, the issue at hand um, involved in the research from the very, very beginning. So the design of the, re- you know, thinking about the research questions, what are the questions that are most important to them? Um, they typically emerge from those uh, kind of different sorts of actors. Um, Through to the design, through to the implementation, and then uh, the uh, actual kind of study conclusion, and then importantly, the dissemination. And so, you know, uh, for me, um, that work, I mean, I think it's important to know that as you, you know, when I describe this process, what it is is, um, what it isn't, I'll start, is, you know, some people will describe it as like a soft science, or it's real nice, or that feels good. And in fact, in practice, um, I don't think it's any of that. We've used a participatory approach for randomized control trials. We've mm-hmm. used a participatory approach for survey design. You can use participatory yep. approach for almost yep. any study. And what it has been, though, is a source of assuring internal validity, external validity, participation rates are high, mm-hmm. you're asking the right sorts of questions, you can focus in on a survey, and you think you've designed the best possible survey as a researcher. And then, you know, and, and I'm a practicing physician, I take care of those folks, and then your survey's crap. You've yeah. given it to, you know, like, you've involved them, they're like, this is what you're using? Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? And then you got to go back to the table. And so, again, it, um, for me, in our experience, um, it has really, uh, ensured that the work, um, is of highest quality, mm-hmm. uh, science where, you know, given kind of limitations. And so, um... The second I would say is that, uh, you know, I often, especially for younger researchers, they're like, this is amazing, this participatory work, and it is. It's incredibly, you know, deeply joyful. It's really rewarding, but it's also hard. It's really time-consuming. It pushes you up against, you know, for us, again, we hire people with histories of incarceration, and so what this means is that you can train a cohort of. Of individuals who you love and respect, and because they've been incarcerated, they too, you know, we've had experiences where they've been reincarcerated. Sure. They're at higher risk for poor health outcomes. They've been hospitalized for myocardial infarction, a heart attack. And so, you know, uh, there's real difficulties in executing. Um, Grants, And so I think it's important to, you know, learn from someone that's doing, realize that your timeline has to be a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. your budgets have to be uh, oftentimes more, and even especially complicated. I think the participatory budgeting is also a complicated part. And so it just takes much more time. It's, uh, you know, you think, oh, yeah, this is just going to roll out quick, and we'll do some participatory work. It's just never the case. And so I think that those are the kind of two things I would say about that work um, it is uh, something that for me uh, well, I have a hard time even saying this out loud but I've been in New for more than a decade now and it is one of these things where um, you know these partnerships kind of yeah, build and grow over time and and that is transformative both on both ends like the academic and then uh, the community partner we've really grown together in our research
0: cool um, all right so I think I've kept you for long enough. Um, so thanks so much for joining us. Sure, thank you. It's always nice to learn more about your work and get to hang out. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's it for doing translational research. Thanks, Great. For, thanks for joining us.
1: For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.nrbrenner.com bctr.cornell.edu